Hello and welcome to A New Legacy, where we are speaking to community leaders and organizers about building a new vision of justice. I'm Annie Nichol and I'm here with my sister Jess, and today we are speaking with Sam Lewis, the founder of the Anti-Recidivism Coalition. And oh my gosh, Jess, I'm so excited about sharing this conversation. Yeah, Sam is one of those incredible people who went through a whole transformation um, from being incarcerated with a life sentence for a gang-related homicide to being released and now going back into prisons to help incarcerated people get on a new path and re-enter society in a good way. Yeah, and honestly, the process of having this conversation was incredibly transformative for me, for both of us. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's dive in, and I'll begin by reading Sam's bio. Great. Sam Lewis is the executive director of the Anti-Recidivism Coalition, ARC. A former life prisoner himself, Sam understands the various obstacles, challenges, and difficulties the prison and re-entry populations face. In 2017, Sam created the Hope and Redemption Team, a first-of-its-kind initiative he built from scratch. The Hope and Redemption Team is a group of nine former California life prisoners who go back into California state prisons to provide hope, demonstrate that redemption is achievable, and to prepare participants for successful re-entry into our communities. His work directing the Hope and Redemption Team exemplifies what's best about ARC, our desire to reach and walk with those who have been most marginalized by society. Most Saturday nights, Sam leads the Hope and Redemption mentors who support youth currently housed at Barry J. Nydorf Juvenile Hall. These youth are facing potentially long prison sentences. The unique mentors are trained in transformative mentoring and use a peer-to-peer credible messenger model to encourage incarcerated youth to believe in themselves and pursue their education while incarcerated. Sam previously worked with friends outside Los Angeles County as job specialist, case manager, employment program supervisor, and project director, roles that reinforced his commitment to creating opportunities for formerly incarcerated men and women as they transitioned back into society. In 2018, Sam was the recipient of a Bank of America Neighborhood Builders Award, Uncommon Laws Uncommon Heroes Award, and 2019 Danger Man Award. So hi, Sam. Welcome. Uh, We're thrilled that you could join us today. Hello, Jess. Hello, Annie. Thank you for having me. So you were incarcerated. You had a life sentence. Yes, I did. But you're no longer incarcerated. Can you tell us a bit about your journey of really how you got out of prison and what it was like for you personally when you were released? Absolutely. But I think in order to talk about how I got out of prison, is also how I landed in prison, too. I grew up in what was what's now known as South Los Angeles, but was infamously known as South Central Los Angeles in the 80s, when Los Angeles was considered the gang capital of our nation and during the height of the crack epidemic. And during this period, I was a teenager, uh, smack in the middle of all of these things that were happening. When I was seven, my dad left the family tumultuously. Like, I literally walked in on him, beat my mother. Mm-hmm. Had never seen anything before. And that was my first experience in terms of, or, or would turn me towards, like, really resenting authority because my father was always the authority figure in our house. And I remember my mom hid for... Uh, a couple of weeks because she's fair-skinned and so she was black and blue. And so that's kind of where my journey started at. Like, I had a lot of things that were going on in my head that I didn't know how to express. Like, I can say at that age, I, I 
really felt a hatred towards my dad. By the time I was 16, I had been shot twice, stabbed, jumped on multiple times, and, and pretty much that resentment just grew. And then by the time I was 18, I, I had like was immersed in the gang culture, was a, a high school dropout, and committed a horrible crime, a murder, gang-related, and was sentenced to life in prison, and rightly so at the time. A month after my arrest, my daughter was born. And I didn't know when she was born that she would be the person that literally launched me into really wanting to change. And so I got to know my daughter in different prison visiting rooms, literally in the visiting room, coloring books, talking, like watched her grow up to about the age of seven. Uh, I was still immersed in, in, in the gang culture while in prison. And about seven years in, into my sentence, my daughter came to visit me uh, and I had gotten into some trouble in the yard. And so I was in chains and handcuffs and behind this thick, scarred plexiglass. And my daughter walked into the visitor room and she's scanning the visitor room and she sees me. She walks up to the window and she looks in and she sees these chains. And her look went from one of curiosity to fear. And as a father, I just knew she wasn't afraid for herself, but it was like, what, is, what are they doing to my dad? And she picked up the phone and she looked at me and asked me, why are you back there like that? And how come I can't hug you? And the truth was, at that time is that I had not been put my daughter first. I had not thought about the ramifications of my actions. And I looked at her and just told her, Daddy got in some trouble. And if you can imagine a seven-year-old that just wants a hug from her dad, she looked at me without judgment and just said, could you not get in trouble again so I can hug you when I come back? And it shook me up. When I think deeply about it now, it still brings tears to my eyes. My mom was sitting next to her and took the phone from her and told her, you understand now that everything you do, good or bad, impacts the people that love you the most. And all I could do was nod my head. I remember my mom walking away with my daughter's hand and my daughter stopped her and turned around and said, try hard. I didn't know how I was gonna do it, but I promised her I would. But it planted a seed inside me to, to, to want that change. And it just did not happen overnight. Even though I'll fast forward to where I got out, I, I bumped my head a lot of times. I had to figure out how to get out of the gang. I had to figure out how to like really focus on me. And, and a lot of these things I learned around, along the way with very little help, but the encouragement of my mom and, and, and the desire not to let my, my daughter down or my mom. What a beautiful story, this, this kind of turning point moment with your daughter um, as the inspiration to make a change. And that very change, like if you're deeply immersed in prison in the gang culture there, and you want to make a change, how hard or easy is that in terms of socially? Like, are you open to speaking a little bit about that experience? Absolutely. The process took a while, and there were guys on, on, on different yards that knew me, had known me before prison, and, and like your, your reputation for the things that you do precede you. And, and people know the things that you've done in the past. And I, I told them one day, like, I'm tired of this. Like, why do we have to be out here? Like, why do I have to be part of this? And I remember one of the guys, this old saying, he was like, well, you knew the job was dangerous when you took it. And I was like, well, I don't want the job anymore. Now I was getting angry at uh, myself and, and, and the gang. And I just told him, I said, I'm done. Like, whatever I have to suffer, whatever discipline I need to deal with, like, let's do it now. Because I'm not going to look over my back and I'm done. And I, I remember a couple of the guys that, like, you have status and rank that had, as we call it, rank on the yard, basically said, okay. And in not so kind terms, basically say, go. You have permission. But I'm saying it nicely. It was basically like, get the F on. 
Like you have no backing whatsoever. And, and I was okay with that. A little scary, but I was okay with that. And, and you feel a bit ostracized. My mom, who had always been an advocate for education, kept pushing me. And so one of the things that I did, I, I finished up high school, and I remember going in and asking to take the GED test, and there was a teacher named Mr. Stanley. Mr. Stanley was like what I would describe as a hippie. He literally was so happy based on my scores, except for math, and I couldn't understand what, what excited him about this. He was like, do you know how high you scored? And I was like, no, I, I never really applied myself in school, so I didn't know what to expect, but I've always had this like desire to read and I would always read countless books, something that I picked up from my mom. And so I finished my GED and then Mr. Stanley convinced me to, to try enrolling in college. And I was like, no, like that's not for me. And he was like, why? And I was like, I'm not smart enough to go to college. And he's like, how do you know that? School was just not something where I grew up that was that was really endorsed, so to speak. But he badgered me enough to where I went and I took the the, the entrance exam and, and, and I passed with a pretty decent score. And he said, now you know that school is for you. What it did for me was open up this desire to learn again, a desire that I had lost as a kid when I dropped out of school. And so I wanted to find a way to keep going with, with school, but there was, there was no school available outside of vocations. And so I sent out for a book called The Gorilla Handbook on Correspondence Courses. It's still published today and literally found a way to go to school. I went to work at, in prison industry authority where you can make 75 cents an hour. And I used that money to pay for my tuition to go to, to re-enroll in college. And the funny thing happened along the way. Uh, all this time, I didn't share any of this with my family. And we went on lockdown, and I couldn't pay my tuition because I couldn't work. And so I wrote to my sister, and I asked her if she could send me $200 for school. And so my sister's like, what is this? Like, I, I, She didn't tell me this, but I can imagine because she came to visit the following weekend. And she's like, what is this school you're talking about with this attitude, like $200? Like, who needs, like, really? And I explained to her what I was doing, and she said, okay, send me everything. And I, so I sent her my, my GED certificate. I sent her my scores. I sent her the two classes that I took, and she showed my mom. And my mom came up two weeks later, and she said, we paid your tuition. She said, go to school, and you don't make anything less than an A. And so I just pushed. I just kept going to school, kept going to school. I finished two associate's degrees and pretty much finished my bachelor's degree before I got out. And my mom would always ask me when I finished something, what's next? And so I went to the board nine times. The ninth time I was released, the, the first eight times I was denied. The eighth time we appealed to court and the court sent me back to be reconsidered. Along the way, a number of things transpired. I learned accountability for the actions that I'd taken and, and understand that for me, and this is just for me, I can't speak for anyone else. I live a life that's dual, so to speak. And what I mean by that is I took a life and I don't know what that person would have become had they had the opportunity to become an adult. I always look at what I'm giving back is not just my life, but the life that I took. And I live my life in that fashion because I could live till I'm 80. How long would have the person whose life I took have lived to be? And so if I'm constantly giving back and working to help people not make those same mistakes that I made, I feel like I'm fulfilling both an obligation that I placed on myself 
like doing 24 years in prison is one thing, but I still feel like to to the universe to some extent, giving back is, is just my way of paying forward what I took away that, that can never be uh, returned. Hearing you speak, Sam, it's truly overwhelming to imagine all of the challenges that people leaving prisons face, even beyond just the practical concerns of finding a job or housing. You know, there's reintegrating yourself back into your family, into your communities when you're a completely different person than you were when you left. Can you speak to some of the obstacles you had to work through following your release? It was not easy. When I came home, I came home, come, matter of fact, January 12th, next year will be 10 years that I've been home. And from the pretty much the day that I got home, I just was trying to figure out how to help people. Once I got home, my very first job was at working at Petco. I was a sales associate. My job was to do, was basically to run the crash register and to clean dog tubs. And when I went in the interview, I was like, there are a bunch of kids working here. I was 42 years old. And what I mean by kids, everybody was 18, 20, 21. I think the manager was 23. <laughs> and, and it was $8.15 an hour. But it was the, the first job I had since coming home. And, and I took it seriously. Knowing that this was not where I was going to stop at, but this was the first step in demonstrating both the ability to be dependable and to have impact. And then going from there, there were not a lot of organizations that really helped people that were coming home from prison. But I did come across one uh, that a friend connected me to called Friends Outside in Los Angeles County. I interned for them. And when I interned for them, basically my internship was to learn how to file to be a case manager. And then I discovered a, a skill that I had. I was able to actually get certain companies to commit to offering people jobs. And so that was my first steps. And I always got to give Mary Weaver, who, who's still the executive director of Friends Outside, credit because she was the first person that gave me a chance, an opportunity to demonstrate what I was capable of doing. Out of prison, I, I had not even been out of prison two months. First I interned and then it turned into a full-time job. And so that was the first nine months of my release. And I tried to tell others that come home, take time for your family. Like, really spend time with your family. When it comes to the survivors of violent crime and for the lives that have been lost or taken through violent crime, like, like the crime that I committed, being mindful of, of what you did, but also taking time to make sure that you help your family heal because they also went through what you went through, but from a different perspective. And I wanted so bad to demonstrate to my family that I was a different person and that I could stand on my own two feet and that I am the person that my mom always believed me to be. I wanted them to understand that I wasn't the teenager that was angry and that was hurting people that left the streets. So now, for the most part, I'm in a really good place with my family. And we spend most weekends doing different things together. But it's been a journey. It's been a journey of a lot of things that I've learned, both while inside and coming home. I bet there are so many things to, like, upon leaving prison, you know, so many things to track and you want to, you know, integrate back in a good way. And then there's, you have family and you, when you got into prison, you were a different person. You have different values now. I mean, there's, I can imagine the complexity of that transition. 
Absolutely. It's what I try to tell most people, both when I go inside prisons and, and when I'm here and they come home, is take it slow. When you're inside prison, understand that the socialization within the prison system is not something that you want to allow to become who you are. When I walked out of prison, I said, I'm going to help change this system and make it better. The system for survivors, the system for people that are incarcerated, and the system for, for young people that, that are lost in, in often under-resourced communities that make bad, bad choices, that often harm people. And then along the way, they're, they're lost in trying to figure out, like, why did I do that and how do I change? In terms of the realities of incarceration, it seems like rehabilitation programs aren't as accessible to everyone or aren't as available to everyone, depending on your situation or depending on your sentence. And I was wondering if you could just speak a little bit to how easy or difficult is it for most incarcerated people to get into these programs and and what's that process like? So I'll start by saying what a Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation is today is miles and miles ahead of where it was when, when I started and when I was inside. I mean, there's still a lot to be done. And so my personal experience, both first as a person that was inside, I remember being on yards where there were no programs, not even narcotics anonymous and alcoholics anonymous, no, no programs. That was what it was like when I was in. And I remember getting to Soledad in, in 1998. There were enough of us there that had did like 10, 15 years we started creating curriculums, like things we go to the board and the board would say, you need anger management. Well, we don't have anger management. And so we would write to places and ask, can you send us a curriculum? Can you train us? And Solidad, like a, a few other institutions, became what I described as a, a mecca, so to speak, of rehabilitative programming at one point. I remember the gym that used to have triple bunks in it became the hub of rehabilitation. Program behind program behind program, whether it was alternatives to violence or anger management or leadership training or Toastmasters, you just had all of these programs that, that you can enroll in. And most of the men that were there were in the programs. And so when new people would come into the institution, and some of them that might, might have not decided that they wanted to be involved with programs, would end up getting involved because that was what the majority was doing. And so I started seeing what you would call reverse peer pressure. I remember sitting on a bench where I heard two guys debating Pavlov's theory. And I'm sitting there. I don't see who they are, but they're arguing this theory. And I'm like, I remember sitting on this bench years ago. And instead of it being a debate about Pavlov, it was a debate about who had the most lowriders or sold the most dope or, or like... And I'm like, we're in a different place. And, and, and like just sitting there, I just remember it vividly. And I kind of like chuckled, like, this is really cool that the, the way the system has changed, that, that we had this impact. And there were a few other institutions that had this, but then you had institutions that still didn't have anything or very little. And even today, that's true where you have places like San Quentin and, and Soledad and Chuckawalla that have all of these programs, like Ironwood. But then you also have places like High Desert that had that that's that's so far out and hard to reach. You don't have a lot of programs there, and so uh, depending on the institution where you're located, the level yard that you're on, programs may not be that re readily available. And one of the things that we did here at ARC when we started doing rehabilitative 
programming inside. We wanted to go into the maximum security prisons, the places that normally had the least amount of hope, where we could start with the men that were on these higher level institutions and demonstrate that one, redemption is possible if you hold yourself accountable and do the work to provide hope. And so that they could see living, breathing examples of, of, of people who have been incarcerated that turn their lives around. Therapy, uh, which is something that's that's not available widespread, where you have to go through a, a number of different hoops and be basically designated as a person that has some mental issues to get therapy. And therapy, which should be something that's available for every single person that's, that's in prison, because to use myself as an example, I never saw myself as a victim. And then when I sat down with a therapist, and I was lucky because I figured out how to actually get a psychologist to give me one-on-one therapy. And we did what was called a timeline. And I remember the first time that we basically wrote out all the good things and bad things that happened in my life. And as I got more and more in tune with this therapy, I started understanding like that anger, like it's two ways anger and, and, and uh, trauma can manifest. It can turn inward and, and destroy you and break you down and, and cause you a lot of different mental issues. The ultimate sometimes being suicide. And it can also become outward where you hurt people. You basically take out that anger and all of those things on other people. And it's not an excuse. It's like literally, I always wonder what would I have been like if my mom, if I never saw that? Would I, would I have been so resentful towards police and other authority figures if I had never saw my dad do what he did? If I never was involved in any of these things, what kind of choices would I have made? Would I have decided not to run with a gang if I had never been jumped and felt like I needed some type of protection and retribution? I, I, I honestly began to ask myself those questions. And I can't say, I can't go back and say that I would have made different choices because we all say that, that what is it, hindsight is twenty twenty. But the, the reality is, is I still made choices. I could have went to my mom and said, look, there's a gang that stopped me from going to school and I got to fight them every day. I run from them. And I'm sure my mom would have took action, but I didn't make that choice. And so the reality is that I made wrong choices. What we've attempted to do is one, get people to, to begin to not only inside evaluate the choices that they've made, but, but to imagine making different choices when you come home. When a person gets in your face or pushes you or does something that, that you feel requires a response, how do you walk away? And, and so, like, literally getting people to imagine, like, you have different choices and you are in control of your future. And then also understanding the impact of what you've done to your community and other human beings, people. And the other part that I think is, is really important, we just went into Soledad prison two weeks ago, myself and six other former lifers. And we delivered a message that we intend to share throughout the state in every prison. The staff that are in facilities are human beings, and they're also stakeholders in the people that are in custody. And what we pour into the people that are in custody is what our results are going to be. If we basically dehumanize them, treat them as less than, it's hard to get them to look within themselves to do the work and, and become accountable. But if we humanize them, and demonstrate, one, we're going we're gonna to make sure that you have rehabilitative program. We're going to make sure that you have therapy. Self-accountability is what we need to be looking for. And what we would like to do is be able to create a system where on both sides there's an understanding that these are human beings. From the standpoint of a person that's in custody, the correctional officers are human beings that are doing a job. 
from the standpoint of a correctional officer that's there to make sure that no one breaks out and, and, and everyone's safe, the people that are doing time are human beings. If we create a safer environment inside the prison setting that includes accountability, demonstration of remorse, the ability to, to really look inward for the reason why you made those choices, we'll be creating public safety from the inside out. And we'll create a safer environment for both the people in custody and the correctional officers and all the staff. A lot of people don't realize that correctional officers have a really high rate of divorce, suicide, alcoholism. That's not because they have a bad life. That's because their job. And we have to figure out how to change that because 95% of people that are in prison are coming home. And so if they're coming home, how do we make sure that they come home better than they went in? Well, it's so, it's interesting, you know, the, there's this idea that once a person goes to prison, they're going to reflect on themselves and eventually get to a point of realizing, you know, the error of their ways, or they're going to go through a process of remorse. But it doesn't seem that that's just an automatic, that we actually there's a responsibility to facilitate that process, right, is what I'm hearing. It's like there's a lot of violence that happens in prison. It's not an environment that invites a person necessarily to kind of come to terms with their actions. I have this this question I was thinking of asking you, but it almost, I think I have the answer now. It's like for people who are incarcerated, what do they need? It sounds like support to really realize that their actions have impact is one as well as that, like you went, you got to go to therapy, right? Like actually acknowledging how you felt when you were jumped, when you were eight, the capacity to acknowledge that there's impact on us too, right? Like both, right? The impact on us and the impact on others from the actions that we've taken. Like that seems like such an essential piece of rehabilitation. Absolutely. What I what I've learned both from personal experience and, and from working with people that have come home from prison and working with people that are in prison and people that have never been in prison is that we all want the same thing. People want safe communities to live in. I, if, I, if I go in a prison yard and I have 500 people in front of me and I say, how many people want to have a front yard where your kids and your grandkids can just run and have fun and you don't have to worry about anything happening to them? Everyone raises their hands. And then you ask them, okay, what role do you plan creating this type of community? And then you'll hear people talking about what they have to do. Some people don't know. To give you like a really great, this just happened uh, yesterday morning. So I'm in the office and I had two kids that I've been mentoring, young adults, uh, 20 and 21, just came home from the Department of Juvenile Justice. They went in when they were teenagers, one 15, one 16. And so uh, I, I asked them, I said, have you had breakfast? And they said, no. And I was like, okay, what you want for breakfast? And they look at me and they're like, I don't know. And I was like, well, what do you just tell me what you want? And they said, well, no one's ever asked us that before. Yeah. And, I, and I'm looking, and I'm like, okay. So immediately I'm like, okay, do you like eggs? And they say, yeah. I say, okay, how do you like your eggs? Scramble. Both of them say scramble. Do you like French toast? No, I like waffles. And so literally we created a menu while we were standing there. And I, and I said, you got to remember, like, you're free now. You have to make these choices. Everything that you do is a choice. Now, that was just simple breakfast. Now imagine a person that has been socialized and all he or she knows is gangs and drugs. What do I know outside of that? What can I envision outside of that? How do I learn those things? And, and that's where it comes in that we have to like help them navigate that part. 
I was blessed and lucky to have a mom that pushed education and, and a daughter that just broke my heart because I was breaking her heart. That just told me she she needed me. And not in those words, but what if I didn't have those things? I would have continued down the same path that I was going. I would have stayed involved with gangs. I, all the negative things, I, I would have just embraced that and just stayed an angry person that was closed off to the world. A person goes into prison like you, you don't go in there and start self-reflecting. It's just like... You're not, there are other people there. There's, there's all kinds of stuff that's going on on the prison yard. And, and some people just shut out the outside world. And so if you don't have a roadmap, so to speak, like understanding, like, do you understand that the person whose life you took is never coming back? And they may have had a sister, a mother, a brother. Like, how do you think they felt? One of my close friends who was doing a life sentence, his mom died from cancer when he was real young. He was like around 12 and so we're in prison, and he understood parts of how he got involved with gangs. And he always said it was because of the community that he lived in. And I told him at one point, that's bull. And he was like, what do you mean? I was like, if that's the case, the whole neighborhood would be gangs. Everybody in your neighborhood on the block was not a gang member. And he was like, okay, so how did I get in gangs then? And, and I said, let's talk about it. And I asked him, I said, I said when you were young, I said, I said, you watched your mom pass. He was like, yeah. And you could tell he kind of didn't like where I was going because it, it's a sensitive topic. I said, I said, did you watch her pass away? He said, I watched every day my mom died. And you could tell he was irritated by the question. I said, after she passed away, I said, did you ever get counseling? Did anybody ever ask you if you were all right? And he said, no. And I said, and then when did you get involved with gangs? He's around 13. And I just stood there and looked at him. And you could tell, like, he saw like the hurt and anger that he had. It wasn't like a, a predetermined decision, but this was part of it. Like I lost somebody and I don't know what to do, but I know this group of, of, of people is, is, is embracing me. And then that's the only path you know. And literally he was able to understand from that point forward. And, and I literally was able to watch him distance himself from the gang atmosphere in a way that was unique in him. Like he just didn't come around and he focused on school. The person whose life he took, he said, I never thought about, was this dude shaving yet? What did they do with his clothes? Did they keep them because they wanted to remember him? Or did they get rid of him because they it was too painful? Like, like him sharing those thoughts, like you're thinking about the impact on the family and the community that you had. And that leads to that next level of like literally looking at yourself, would I want that to be done to me or someone that 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 I love? No. So how do I change that? And though he might not verbally say this, but I see him always working and mentoring younger guys that are in South L.A. Just to your point, people don't just go in and reflect. It has to be facilitated. And I think the best facilitators to do that are people that have walked a mile in those shoes. Let's say a person that's never been in prison before is, is pushing to get a person to hold themselves accountable the cop-out might be, well, you don't understand what I've been through. Totally. Mm-hmm. person that did 25, 30 years, like, oh, no, I understand exactly what you've been through because I've been through it too. And just like I'm willing to hold myself accountable, you should stop and think for a second what I did. How did it impact the people around me? How did it impact the families, like, the community? Like, I'm sure you both heard the, the example of, like, when you throw a pebble in a pond, what is the ripple effect? And that's a ripple effect from the family that has survived the crime, that has lost a loved one, the community, the fear that's in the community, and then your own family, too. 
I remember when we were preparing for this conversation, I was reading some of the things that you've said, and you spoke so eloquently about the connection between reentry and public safety and healing in communities. And I was wondering if you could maybe just speak a little bit more to that. Like, how are these things connected? So, so there's a saying in, in this work that, that hurt people hurt people and healed people heal people. On the inside, if I have not addressed the wounds or trauma that, that I've experienced in order to heal myself, I won't be able to hold myself accountable or, or admit the wrongs that I've done. But once I'm able to do that, the next step is that the thing that I want to do is I want to make right or at least try to implement things that will make my community better, help my, my community heal. And, and the only way to do that is that I got to first heal myself. And then I can go out and I can mentor young men and others in the community on what your choices are. Like, I often tell young people, like, the choice you make today will be your tomorrow's. And then when we look at it in terms of public safety, reentry doesn't start when a person's released. Reentry should start the day a person ends up in our carceral system. I'm prepared to come home. I'm added value to public safety because I'm going to want to be able to influence my community in a way that's positive. If I see something that shouldn't be happening, in one way or another, I'm, I have all these tools that I can work with to help change things. Sometimes it may be something as simple as, like, I see a bunch of youngsters hanging out. Let's go to the park and throw a football around instead of you not doing anything. And then if, if you're doing that and you start a conversation and you figure out how to start directing them, because sometimes people just don't have a direction. but. If we pour into the people that are in our carceral system, all the resources that they need to both become the best version of themselves and to heal, when they're released, that's adding to our public safety. Because they're going to look at it like, I, I got to change this, this community, or I, I, at least I have to do the best and be the best version of myself and not add to this. Working from that prism, we're also working from a prison of being able to heal our communities. Well, I'll say that three major uh, themes for me in our whole conversation here, it's like, what do folks need, incarcerated people and people reentering society, is healing of themselves, accountability for their actions, and role models. This is kind of what I'm what I'm getting so far from from this whole conversation. Does that seem pretty on? It, it's pretty on. And I, I would have to also add, while inside resources that translate into the ability for a person to actually make a, a living wage, I'd rather be trades or college education, but something where I step out, I can actually go into a career. And that's fiscally smart, too, because we pay like close to $70,000 a year to keep a person in prison. Now, if we took that person out now, first of all, they're not costing us $70,000 anymore. Let's say they're in an $80,000 a year job. They're paying into the tax base and they're creating public safety. The ability to heal accountability and a guide or mentor, but also the resources to, to prepare them for their reentry and then realistic opportunities when they come home to actually have those living wage jobs. We can do it, too. I have to say that almost a three-year period, we put close to 300 people into union jobs in the L.A. and O.C. building trades through our pre-apprenticeship program. 
all formerly incarcerated, electricians, plumbers, pipe fitters. We created the first ever firefighters program where people that are coming out of the fire camps now have the opportunity to actually become firefighters. That's a career. That's a way of life. It's amazing. Yeah. And talk about public safety. Exactly. <laughs> I, like those are the, 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 the innovative things that we can do. Like how do we like pull a tech sector into this mm-hmm. and just continue to create? Because the, the, as we do this, we shrink our carceral system, yes, but we also, again, enhance public safety. It's so incredible. I feel so grateful and inspired to know that people like you are doing this work because it just feels so vital to the health of our society. You're such a a wonderful and graceful presence. I don't know. I just feel a strange sense of healing just in talking to you. And I imagine that you have that same impact on so many people. So thank you so much for everything that you're doing and for talking with us today. Thank you for having me, and and thank you for the work that that you're embarking on. I can't see from your perspective. I can empathize on, on a level that some might not be able to, and see like, in order to change our system, we need all of us. And, and when I say I change our system, like, I've heard some people say, "So you want to just empty out prisons?" No, I want a better society for us. Like we make up. of the world's population, but we have 25% of the people in prison in our country. I know we can do better, and it's not seen it, but always with accountability and healing. And and that's the hard part, because when a life is taken, that's hard to heal. I really agree that it's up to all of us here to contribute how we can for a better society. And I'm curious, Sam, if you have ideas or invitations for folks that are listening to this conversation what can we do so uh, different different levels like when i look at la la is a unique county not just in the size of of like probation all those things but la has 11 sports teams which means they have 11 foundations which means they have uh, a bunch of players on teams let's change how la works let's create Preventative efforts for our young people. First, robust prevention and intervention. If you're retired and you're a coach or a a dance teacher or a music teacher and you're retired, find a way to volunteer to help young people be able to learn learn those things. Some kids want to be engineers. They're mathematicians. There's so many different things out there, but each person has has to be able to invest in, in our communities. And, and it's fun when you're working with, with, with kids and young people. You get to watch them become who they are. So that's one prevention and, and intervention when it comes to, uh, especially under-resourced communities. Opportunities for people that may have companies or, or have influence with companies or, or have training that they call for. Offer it to people that are coming out of incarceration and people that are in these under-resourced places. Look at ways to invest, to be able to change that dynamic, because what we're doing is we're creating a system that's different from what we live in. I got to tip my hat to our elected officials that have pushed hard to make the system better in terms of rehabilitative programming. For the first time in almost 40 years, I think it is, they're closing a prison. But being mindful that resources have to be available to help people while they're inside and once they're released. Not to take care of them, but to give them the opportunity to stand on their own two feet. 
to people that come from these different walks of lives, find your niche that you're able to give back in our community. And when I say our community, I, like I'm talking about LA, the entire state of California, there are different things that people can do. You, you may have influence with a person that owns a company. So I would say to those that, that are able to, let's find a way to, to uplift the least of us. If we go and we uplift the least of us, it's gonna uplift everyone else. And those that are, that are most vulnerable, that don't have a choice often in where they're at in their life are children, like let's double down on that. Let's figure out a way how to make it happen because every Saturday I go into juvenile hall, Barry J. Nightoff, and work with kids, and, and mostly kids that have committed some, some pretty tough crimes. What I found when I learned their stories is like, Oftentimes, their lives start off great when they're young, and then something happens. Mom loses her job. They're living in a car. And now I think I'm, I'm 12, so I'm going to go sell dope to help my mom. To us as adults, like, why would you do that? Mm-hmm. I'm 12. I don't think, I'm not that smart. I'm 12, <laughs> but I, I, I think I have a solution. And, and that's where they're at. And so now imagine this kid that goes to sell dope and someone robs him. Okay, well, I'm not going to let him rob me because I need this money, so I'm going to go get a gun. And the next thing you know that is this child has committed a murder. But wait a minute. What about the mom who lost her job? What if we had provided assistance to her? We would have stopped this child from ever deciding to sell dope in the first place. Like, it starts with the family. And, and like, they say 80% of kids in public school live below the poverty line. Our state, first of all, as wealthy as our state is, and, and arguably the richest country in the world, how do we do that? What I would ask for people is like, figure out a way to do better by our kids. And, and when I say our kids, I mean all kids. Like We have to do better by them because it's our responsibility. If we do better by them, our communities will be better. Sam, I've gotten chills, I think, at least five times while <laughs> no, you've been speaking <laughs> in this whole conversation. It's been really wonderful. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. you so much for for sharing everything that you've shared with us and for doing what you're doing. Yeah. It's incredibly inspiring. Yeah, and I Thank you. I hope that we get to continue being in conversation with you. I, you know, if there's anything we can do to support or help, we would love to do that. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And, and again, I... I'm I'm a supporter, so just let me know how I can help also. All right. Thank you. What an amazing thing that we get to be in these conversations with people. I know. It's so good. Oh, my gosh. The whole idea of him and others going into prisons and supporting other incarcerated folks in reflecting and understanding the impact of their actions and, you know, getting the impact of their childhood or their traumas. It seems like everything springs from that. One of the things I was thinking about, too, was he was talking about how, you know, it was his daughter and his mother who sort of inspired him to change. And I think that that's true for most of us, that, like, we need someone else to change for, you know, or to heal for. Like, often... To break our heart open. Yeah, often we're not going to do that for ourselves unless there's, like, some greater purpose to it. And if you don't have one then what reason do you have to do that work? And I think that's part of the accountability too of what he was saying of like, you know, living two lives, you know, living for for the life that he took as well. It's sort of the same thing. And I think that that's part of where the healing and accountability piece can meet. 
thank you for joining us for this episode of A New Legacy. If you'd like to support Sam's work, you can visit antirecidivism.org and also check out our website at anewlegacy.com, where we will list some additional opportunities to support organizations mentioned on this episode.